0: In the center of Main Street in Enterprise, Alabama, stands one of the strangest monuments in the world. It's a memorial to an insect. You can look this up, don't do it now. You can look this up, but Enterprise, Alabama, downtown Main Street, has a monument, a memorial to an insect. There is a statue of a Greek woman that stands proudly. As you can see there in that picture, at the center of Enterprise, Alabama, it's White marble arms stretch high above its head. In fact, let's go to the next picture to give you a better view. The white marble arms stretch high above her head as this beautiful woman's hands hold a round bowl that holds on top of that bowl an enormous bug. It's a bowl weevil, to be precise. Not just any bug, but a bowl weevil. The statue is about 50 pounds in statued form of that bow weevil, but normally the bow weevil is smaller than the size of your pinky fingernail. Now why in the world would Enterprise Alabama have a marble statue of a bow weevil in the middle of Main Street? Well many people believe that divine providence was involved in the circumstances that led to this unusual statue. In the early days of the plantation days, if you will, almost everybody in Enterprise, Alabama, had cotton fields. They raised cotton. Then, the boll weevil began to come into the area and devastated, not just Enterprise, but devastated the entire South's cotton industry. Uh, Did a little research, you can actually read about this, at Smithsonian Magazine Magazine. But the boll weevil lives almost exclusively in a cotton plant. You won't find it really in other plants that much, but almost exclusively in cotton plants. And in the early season of cotton, the boll weevil, the adult bugs, would feed on the cotton leaves, and then they would puncture the cotton square before it blooms, and they would go into the cotton square, and there's where they would lay their eggs. And before that bloom came out, the eggs would eventually hatch, and the grubs would chew their way through that cotton and eat almost everything that's inside that bulb so that when the cotton bulb opened, there was very little cotton left. In fact, this is what was astounding to me. I I had to double research this to make sure that this was an accurate statement. In a single season, one mating pair of bulb weevils can produce two million offspring. So you can see how quickly the boll weevils could move through a property and destroy your cotton field. It became almost impossible to bring a season's growth of, of cotton to market. And the Enterprise Alabama was no exception. The, the cotton gin in Enterprise Alabama only ginned about 5,000 bales of cotton in 1915. The year prior to that, they bailed 15,000 bales of cotton. George Washington Carver, along with some other scientists, became deeply concerned about the situation. They began to study intensively how could we solve this problem. And one of the things that they came up with was perhaps substituting a different crop. Rather than trying to grow cotton, what else could we grow in this sandy soil? In 1916, there was a farmer named C.W. Batston who was convinced by some other folks, the scientists and a salesman, that maybe it's time to try peanuts. And he planted his entire crop in peanuts that year. That year, he earned $8,000 from his new crop and paid off his prior year's debt and had money left over. As you can imagine, word of Batson's success spread uh, quickly throughout Enterprise Alabama. And the farmers who had once scorned the idea of growing anything other than cotton they jumped on the peanut train pretty quick. And in fact, again, I had to read the article twice to make sure that I was saying this correctly. By 19, that was in 1915, not 1916. That was in 1916. By 1917, the regional farmers produced over a million bushels of peanuts that sold for more than $5 million. And that just astounds me. As you can imagine, in time, it wasn't long before the the cotton gins were forgotten, and the region became known, known as one of the most outstanding peanut centers in the world. And so, in the end of it all, the townsfolk and the farmers realized that the destructive insect that they had feared had actually triggered the research that brought them prosperity. So there's a landmark in Enterprise, Alabama. I don't know if you can read it from where you are, but it says, Bow-weevil monument December 11, 1919 in profound appreciation of the bow-weevil in profound appreciation of the bow-weevil and what it has done for the herald of prosperity this monument was erected by the citizens of Enterprise Coffee County Alabama in order to show their appreciation for a bow-weevil they have built a monument because of its profound influence on their agriculture and their economy. Here's the reason to tell you that story. Sometimes bad things in life can turn out to be good things. Sometimes bad things in life can turn out to be good things. Now they may not be good at the moment. But in time you can look back and you could realize that the hard times were actually perhaps... One of the best things that ever happened to you. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Say, man, that was one of the hardest things I ever went through. But it's one of the best things I ever went through. Tonight's study is going to focus on the process that God uses sometimes to make painful things profitable things in our lives. In fact, that's the title of the study tonight, if you're taking notes. Painful, yet profitable. How is it that God can use painful things... To bring about profitable things in our lives. John 4 is the record of something good that came out of something bad. If you have God's word, you can look with me at that text. John chapter 4. It's a story of a man who went to Jesus at a crisis moment in his life. And Jesus not only met the immediate need that he had, but he changed his entire life and he changed his entire family. But that's not the way things started out. Look at John chapter 4, verse 46. Once more, he, Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. I've told you many times before, it's really good when you're reading the Word of God to try to read with a, a map nearby, To try, especially if you're reading it in the New Testament, try to gain An understanding of where these things occurred. So let's look at the map of Galilee. Look at the text with me, and then we're going to look at the map. Verse 46 says this. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee. Cana was a town. Galilee is is the area, if you will, where he had turned water into wine. So let's look at this. Uh, You see the area of Galilee there around the Sea of Galilee, which is the blue area there. And you see Cana. Right there, kind of in the middle towards the bottom. I've got it underlined in red. And of course, Nazareth is in red. That was the town where Jesus grew up. Not where he was born, but the town where he grew up. Cana was nearby, and this is where Jesus was. And we're going to read about a man who came from Capernaum. Capernaum is one of my favorite places in Israel. And you can see it's right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. They are underlined in red. Look at the distance and remember this in, in your mind. We'll talk about the distance again in a little bit, but... Read the text one more time with me in verse forty-six. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. In other words, this man found himself in Galilee, uh, found himself in Cana, because Jesus was there, but his son was sick back in Capernaum. I want you to pray with me as we talk about this very. Powerful story. Father, thank you for reminding us tonight that sometimes the painful things in life can turn out to be the profitable things in life. The bad things can turn out to be good things if we allow you to work in our lives through them. The things we would never choose for ourselves are things you sometimes use to bring us into a relationship with you. So open our eyes, open our ears, open our heart to what you want to say to us tonight. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this tremendous story of this dad who was just so distraught over the situation he found his son was in. There's three things I want you to see in this story as we work our way through the text. And the first one is this. Heartache is the world's great equalizer. Heartache is the world's great equalizer. Let's read, I know we've read verse 46 now a couple of times, but uh, let's read verse 46 and then go on to verse 47. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Heartache is something that all people experience at one time or another. It's a universal experience, isn't it? One of the things that that grabs us as we watch the news about Ukraine is the heartache that people are going through the devastating experiences that they they are having but our, our town may not be bombed and our families may not be in those situations for sure but we all know what heartache is like no one's excluded it seems like every day as a pastor it seems like every day almost i hear another story of someone in our church or someone in our community that's going through a heartbreaking experience and no one is excluded That's vividly portrayed in verse 46. Here in verse 46 there is a man that's referred to as a royal official. He is a a royal official it says. And yet he has a son who lay sick. A a royal official, if you want to put this down, was a royal official. Was an official in King Herod's court. He was a man who had a position in King Herod's court. He was probably very wealthy because of his position. He likely was well known because of his position, and he definitely had a lot of influence and authority because of his position. But pain and sorrow knows no boundaries. Sooner or later, everyone has to attend the school of sorrow, including a royal official. The text emphasizes the severity of the situation. I want you to look at verse 46, and I want you to look at verse 47. I want you to tell me, talk to me a little bit tonight. Let's have a little bit of a dialogue. In verse 46 and in verse 47, how would you describe the severity of the situation? Verse 46 describes it in one way. Verse 47 describes it in another. So you talk to me for a moment. How desperate was this situation? Let's start with verse 46. In verse 46, how is the son's condition described? He lay sick. Where is he laying sick? Talk to me. Where is he laying sick? Back home in Capernaum. In other words, he's so sick, he can't get to Cana, where Jesus is. He lay sick. He's confined to a bed in Capernaum. By the way, this is the ruins in the city of the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, so so here's the son who, verse 46, he lays sick in Capernaum, he can't he's too sick to travel to, to Cana where Jesus is, verse 47 gives us more insight, verse 47, how is he referred to yeah, his son was close to death if you're a parent I want you to think of how powerless this must have felt for this royal official, would you just think for me how, he, how powerless he must have felt because he is a man of power. He's a royal official in Herod's court. But he has no power over his son's situation. His position can't help him. His money can't help him. There's no strings he can pull. Here's his only option. His only option is in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Here was his only option. He went to him and he begged him. Tell me, if you're taking notes, tell me what the first point is. What was the first point? It's right here if you can't read it. I mean, if you can't remember it. Heartbreak is the world's great equalizer. Heartbreak is the world's great equalizer. You know, in a group like this, who knows what the heartbreak is right now? Who knows what your struggle is? Uh, Maybe you have confided in a few people, or maybe you're very private, and you're kind of holding it in, and you don't want others to know, or who knows who's watching tonight, and what your heartbreak is, and what you're dealing with. One thing is true heartbreak is the world's great equalizer. Here's the second truth I want you to see in this story. Look at this motivation is sometimes driven by desperation. There's only one good thing about the heartbreak this man was experiencing that is, his desperation led him to Jesus. Quite frankly, if his son had not been dying, he likely would have had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. His motivation to go to Jesus was his desperation to help his son. God, in his providence, often uses our need to drive us to him so we can find more than what we think we need. Do you remember how far Capernaum is from Canaan? Do you remember that map? I don't know if you guys can go back. Let's, if you can, yeah, let's go back to this map. Maybe I didn't tell you. I don't think I told you how far it is. But from Capernaum to Cana, it looks like a really long distance there because the map is blown up. But from Capernaum to Cana, it's about 20 miles. Now, to help you understand how far that is, I did a little research on Google Maps, and I found out that from our property to the uh, Anderson Mall is 21 miles. So this man was about that distance away from Jesus, the distance from our church to Anderson Mall, about 21 miles. Now, would you go 21 miles to help your son who was laying dying? Of course you would. This desperate dad covered that distance. But I wonder, let's think for a moment. When he left Capernaum, was it hard to leave? Because his son was lay, laying dying. I mean, the, the text doesn't tell us. This is just speculation. But I wonder if he stood at the door for a moment looking at his son. Laying on that bed. And wondering if he'd ever see him alive again. This is not a make-believe story. This, this was real life. So he's going to leave his home and he's going to leave his son who is laying there dying. And in desperation, he's going to travel 20 to 21 miles to go ask Jesus to heal his son. Now, this desperate dad, I'm assuming, didn't walk. But if he did, I bet he walked fast, don't you? More than likely, because he was a royal official, more than likely, he had at least a horse, maybe a chariot. And he likely pushed that horse or that chariot as fast as it would go, those 20 or 21 miles. But still, it must have taken some time to get there. If you were going to ride a horse from here to Anderson Mall, I don't know how long that would take, but it would be more than just a few minutes. But here he comes towards Cana, out of desperation, driven by panic, driven by fear. And he, but he came genuinely, and he came sincerely to Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question, those who are watching online? Where do your sorrows drive you? His sorrow, his pain, his panic drove him to Jesus. But where do your problems drive you? For some, it drives them to alcohol. Or it drives them to drugs. Or it drives them to an illicit relationship. And it's the only way that they know how to soften the pain. It's the only way that they know how to quiet the fears. But those those things never help. They almost always make things worse. Can I say to you here tonight, can I say to you who are watching online, the sensible thing if you have that kind of pain and that kind of panic and that kind of problem, the sensible thing to do would be to go to Jesus with you. That's just not preaching. That's just true to life. You see, your desperation should be your motivation to send you to Jesus. Now, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been a pastor now for 35, nearly 36 years. And I have heard this more than once. People in desperate situations say to me sometimes, but preacher, I feel like a hypocrite. What are you talking about? I feel like a hypocrite because I had no interest in God whatsoever. But now that I'm in this situation, now that I'm in this desperate need, now I come running to God and I just feel like a hypocrite. Can I give you an answer to that? Are you coming to him genuinely now? Are you coming to him sincerely now? Then you don't need to feel like a hypocrite. Because now you're coming to him genuinely and sincerely and if it took this pain and this problem for you to come away from where you were to come to Jesus then that's a good thing so long as you're coming to Jesus genuinely that's a good thing sincerely that's a good thing don't feel bad about coming to Jesus when you need him most now let's go back to the text I said something about this earlier, but I want you to mark it in your Bible, if you don't have it marked already. In verse 47, notice how this man came to Jesus. He didn't just come to Jesus and talk to him. When he arrived in Galilee, he went to him and begged him. Begged him. The idea is he begged him over and over. The boy wasn't able to come to Jesus on his own. His son was laying dying. He wasn't able to come to Jesus on his own. So here is this man going to, this dad going to Jesus on behalf of his son. And by the way, can I say to you, if you're a parent, every parent, or I'm sorry, every child needs a parent who who will go to Jesus on their behalf. Every child, even if you're children, all of my kids are grown. Even if your kids are grown, you still need to go to Jesus on their behalf. Jesus responded to this man's request in an odd way. The the story takes a turn we don't expect. In verse 48, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. Scholars debate what was happening here and why Jesus said what he said. It's, the text says that he said this to the man, but maybe he was speaking to more than just that one man. Maybe he was speaking to the crowd who was gathered around the man. I think that might very well be the situation. That He was probably directing these words not just to the man, certainly to him, but to everyone around him. You see, in Galilee, Jesus was thought of primarily as a miracle worker. Early in his ministry, he was thought of as a miracle worker. How do I know this? Well, if you look in verse 45, you get a hint at that. Verse 45. When he, Jesus, arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, and they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had all been there. So they had seen what Jesus had done in Jerusalem. Word had gotten back to Galilee. He's here now. Did you hear the miracles he performed down in Jerusalem? Maybe he will do that here now. And by the way, where was he? What town was he in? Canaan, do you remember? That's where he performed his first miracle. And so he had quite a reputation as a miracle worker in Galilee. And Jesus responded in an unusual way when, when he said, him. In verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. In other words, their faith was propped up by miracles. They had been there for a show. But this man had not come for a show. This man had come because his son was about to die. And then the story gets better. Verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, I don't have time to debate this with you. I don't have time to talk about miracles and I'm not here for a show. I'm just asking you, will you come back home with me before my boy dies? Look what happens. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. Now, pause right there. Hey, I know you're, you're a bunch of Bible-believing Baptists, but let, let me just pause here for a moment. I, I know you probably already know how the story turns out, but let me just pause for a moment. He says, you may go, go back home, your son will live. Can I tell you how East Tennessee boy would have said it? I would have said, I ain't leaving here until you go with me. Right? Because that's the reason I came. I came to get him, to bring him back, and now he's thrown me a curve. Now he's saying you can go on home. Your son's going to live. Let's just take a, a vote. How many of you would have felt good about that answer, and you just would have went home? And how many of you would have said, "No, I'm not leaving till you go home with me." So let's just see. Now, now remember, God's watching. He knows if you're telling the truth. <laughs> All right. So, so how many of you would have felt good and said, "Okay, I'll take that on faith. And I'm heading back home." How many would? Have, how many of you would have said, I'm not leaving till you go with me? Alright, I'm glad I know I'm preaching to the right crowd. I, that would have been me. I would have been so reluctant. I would have said, no, please, please, please. I didn't come here just to get well wishes. I need you to come home with me. I need you to come heal my boy. But I love, I love the last part of verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Man, that is faith. You might want to write down in the column of your Bible a beautiful picture of faith. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The essence of faith is to believe that what Jesus says is true. And that's what this man did. He simply believed that what Jesus said was true. You see, if Jesus says something, it's not that it may be true or that it could be true. If Jesus says it, it must be true because Jesus said it. And so here's this man having tremendous faith. And he walks away from Cana, going back those 20 miles to Capernaum, simply believing that what Jesus said is true. That's an amazing faith. Just think about what must have gone through his mind as he traveled those 20, 21 miles. Just think about one, he probably had to have great anticipation. I've got to get there as soon as I can. And he probably had to have some hesitation. I wish he would have come with me. But the text says. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now, let's go to the third thing. Bad things can actually become, or I'm sorry, bad things can actually lead to God things. Not not just good things. Bad things can actually lead to God things. This is the heart of the story. You see, this man didn't just get what he needed out of Christ and then go on his way. This man had a life-changing experience with Jesus. That bad thing, watch this, that bad thing became a God thing. Not just a good thing. The bad thing became a God thing. I'll show it to you in the text. Verse 51. While he was still on his way, His servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Apparently, they noticed that all of a sudden he's gotten better to such a degree that somebody said, Somebody needs to go tell him. And somebody jumped on a horse or a chariot or something, and they ran or went towards Cana, trying to find this man, this royal official, to give him the good news Your boy is living, he's getting better. Verse 52 is so cool. Verse 52. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better. They said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. And then the father realized that this was the exact time, underline that, the exact time at which Jesus had said, your son will live. So he and all of his household believed. What a beautiful picture. This man and his entire family, his entire household was saved because they turned to Jesus in desperation. Now quickly for the next few minutes, I want to show you the progression of faith here. Walk with me as we talk about the progression of faith. In verse 47, there is what we might call crisis faith. That is, I've got a crisis, maybe Jesus can help me. Verse 47 is crisis faith. He runs to Jesus. He heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee of Judea. He went to him and begged him to come and to heal his son who was close to death. He at least had enough faith to go to Jesus. He at least had enough faith to leave Capernaum and go 20 miles or so to Canaan. He, but, but it was a crisis faith. It was a faith driven by this crisis that he found his family in. But watch the progression. The crisis faith led him to what we might call confident faith. Verse 50. Jesus replied, you may go and your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And I would put in parentheses, departed confidently. Or he wouldn't have left. This crisis faith that led him to Jesus. Now that he had talked to Jesus and now that he had seen Him and heard what Jesus said, now all of a sudden this this crisis faith began to grow to such a degree. He was willing to turn around and go back home, confidently believing that what Jesus said was true. And then that confident faith became a confirmed faith in verse 53 the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he believed. He believed. It was confirmed to him. When was he healed? Oh, it was yesterday, about this hour. And he realized that's the same time Jesus said, your son will live. And he realized that Jesus was the source of his blessing. Jesus was the source of the healing. And this man put his faith in Jesus. Crisis faith gave way to confident faith, which gave way to a confirmed faith, which gave way to a contagious faith. Because in the second part of verse 53, not just did he believe, but all his household believed. Because they saw it, they lived it. They saw this faith that this man had to leave, this crisis faith this confident faith that would allow him to come back home. They they saw it, and they saw the confirmed faith in this man, and it it was contagious, and they put their faith in God as well. Let me ask you a question in closing. Have you ever heard somebody describe a difficult time and then say, yeah, it's hard, it was was awful, it was difficult, It it was devastating, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. That doesn't quite make sense sometimes, does it? It was the hardest thing I ever went through, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Most difficult time in my life, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. What they're saying is this, and I would put it on the screen. Something so good happened out of something bad that it made the bad thing worth it in order to experience the good thing. Think of this man. Something so good happened that eventually he put his faith in Christ. Something so good happened out of something so bad, his son dying, that it made the bad thing worth it, going through that trauma. It made the bad thing worth it in order to experience the good thing. He and all of his household believed. Now, where do you and I intersect this story? How do you and I live out this story? I I would just give you this sentence, and that is yes, what you're going through may be painful, but it can also be profitable. Continue to put your faith in Jesus, continue to trust Him. Or if you haven't yet, put your faith in Christ once and for all. It may be painful. But it can be profitable. That thing that may be devastating you right now. Might be the very thing God uses to bring you to faith in Christ. And it may not just be that you put your faith in Christ. But it might be that you and your whole household put their faith in Christ. Wouldn't it be just like God to use something painful and make it profitable? And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your goodness that you do indeed help us through the painful times of life. And sometimes we're not guarded against those. We all have to walk through those times of heartache. But you are able in your providence and your sovereignty and your goodness to take the painful things we go through. And even then, make them profitable. Turn our hearts to you. And may we live our lives through your glory. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.